0: street epistemology is a wonderful approach that anyone can learn you can learn more about street epistemology at
1: streetepistemology.com guest, as you already already saw, is Eric Anderson, LMFT, uh, who's going to talk to us about how to avoid harm in street epistemology. What does LMFT stand for?
0: I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. It's one of those terms that's regulated by the state, and you have to take special tests to get that license. Okay. Uh,
1: I want to make sure to put your... Uh, contact information in, in the dis, in the in the bottom. So, sure. I think, I think you already sent it to yeah. me in the text. So I will do that right after. So, could you tell us more about yourself before I start peppering you with questions?
0: Yeah, sure. I'm uh, I'm a therapist practicing in West Los Angeles, California. Um, my office is down in Playa Vista, but uh, recently I've been seeing everyone over video. Um, Let's see, I have a, I I work with individuals and couples dealing with anxiety, depression, relationship issues, substance Mm -hmm. use issues. Um, And, uh, yeah, other than that, I can tell you a little bit about me personally as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, uh, yeah, I'm, uh, how I normally relieve my stress is Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, which Mm. I've been doing for 13 years. Mm -hmm. But, uh, yeah, it's been, the wrestling and getting on the mat has been Massively reduced with COVID, so mm-hmm. I'm without my primary stress relief. Um, mm. So I've been going on long bike rides again, and that's probably where I'm headed after this is out on a, a two-hour trek up uh, up a hill. Okay, wow, up a hill. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. I remember back when I used to do that. Uh, my my body's not up for bicycling anymore. Also, I've become scared. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm, I'm afraid of riding bicycles in traffic. I had one too many accidents uh so uh tell me about se for you is uh, i met you back in february just before covid at a pizza yeah. meetup with uh mm-hmm. reed at in the la street epistemology group that's a meetup group uh and that was really cool to to meet you and you were already into street epistemology at that point uh, I want to ask you how we can better do street epistemology based on your experience in cognitive behavioral therapy. So that's... Uh, I, I want to start with what's your history with street epistemology? How, how familiar are you with the process?
0: Yeah, I have not read the initial book that street epistemology grew out of, and I'm mm-hmm. curious to do that. Hmm. But I think I was introduced to street epistemology um Sometime right before or after meeting Reed, I I ran into his YouTube channel, uh, Cordial Curiosity, Mm -hmm. and I started watching some of his videos and noticing that it had to do something with street epistemology and watching some of Anthony's videos, too. And um, upon watching videos, I just found it uh, fascinating one because it's very similar. It's this sort of, even as you become like a, as you're learning to be a therapist, you learn these small skills that you need to employ mm. as a therapist. And some mm-hmm. of those are very commonly employed in street epistemology. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the most basic one is considered this very foundational skill of Socratic questioning, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is the term that we use even in the therapy world. Uh, so it seemed like that right away. But I'm also a nerd involved in the rationality community. And I don't know if you've heard of rationality blogs such as lesswrong.com or Slate Star Codex. But there are a lot of, like, um, there are these blogs that try and have entertaining discussions mm. about what might otherwise be, like, analytic philosophy. Like, how do we know what mm. we know? Um, mm. What are better and worse ways to know? So, they these blogs end up discussing various approaches to things like epistemology, which got me interested in that subject. So, I was already interested in epistemology before I discovered street epistemology, and... Uh, and uh so discovering this sort of combination of people going out and having that sort of socratic experience of socratic questioning and uh questions with an epistemological bend uh was really interesting to me so uh i i'm yeah but at the same time i hadn't really been the subject of uh, street epistemology, nor had I been mm-hmm. one of the interrogators, so I did that in the last week in preparation <gasps> for this to see what it was like. So we we got to have some experience together doing that, and I got yeah. to I got to have read as my subject. Mm-hmm. So that was both of those were very fun experiences. Those were that was a whole fun
1: evening. Uh, that was that was engaging and fun. We went to all over the place. Uh, Indeed. So uh, these skills that uh, you're talking about Socratic questioning, are there other of the skills that they taught you in this uh, in in therapy school that that we use or maybe
0: we should? Oh, yeah. I mean, when I see people going out and practicing SE, I find it kind of bizarre because I'm interested in those practices on a personal level because therapy has been very useful to me and I'm interested in providing that same Service to others, like, uh, and uh, I can talk a little more if you want about my general concept of like what is therapy, what does it do, like, why do we do it? Yeah, but street epistemologists are out there trying to build the same sorts of relationships that therapists are, which is you know, relationships that help foster some sort of change process. Mm -hmm. And so, street epistemologists, like therapists, are doing things like active listening. Socratic mm-hmm. questioning, mm-hmm. reflecting and clarifying meaning and feelings okay. and uh, really also doing things like that help build a working reliant alliance like mm-hmm. uh, getting permission, making mm-hmm. sure there's clear informed consent. So I just listened to this last week's Street Epistemology podcast where Anthony's ending up talking about like, hey, one of my goals has been to get more informed consent in street epistemology. And he might mm-hmm. not have used those particular words, but that was what he was talking mm-hmm. about. I want to tell people about what the process is, make sure they understand it so they know what they're getting into and are comfortable getting into it. So those are all really interesting parallels that I see to the point where I'm like, street epistemologists are really trying to train themselves to be a certain kind of therapist. Mm. Uh and I feel like I watch some people practice and I go, these people would be effective therapists, or at least that's what they're training themselves for.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I see it as a benefit. I, obviously, there's things in therapy, therapy that we don't want to get anywhere near because mm. uh, I, I, I don't want to create a bunch of parasocial relationships. I don't want to set up somebody's expectation. I don't want to put somebody out in a place where I'm setting them up to fail. Oh, those are terrible things. And I want to, I want mm-hmm. to avoid that kind of thing. How can I, what kind of things do I need to make sure to not do? Something I might naturally gravitate toward and then realize there's a downside effect that I'm not taking into account that could potentially cause somebody trouble.
0: Tell me, okay, so it sounds like you're saying you imagine that there are certain conversations that could turn very harmful. And that some of those conversations are things that therapists might engage in and know how to navigate better. But that street epistemologists might wander into and not know how to navigate. Is that what you're asking?
1: Yeah. I also want to make sure we're not actually crossing into territory of doing therapy. We're not qualified to do that. And there's reasons why therapists need to be qualified. And I want to avoid tripping on those issues.
0: Yeah. Um... So I think, for me, the most important part of therapist qualifications is, uh, like, and why we really ought, to, why I think we ought to have some sort of, like, licensing and regulation system mm-hmm. is mostly because of adherence to standards of ethics. Mm-hmm. Um, outside of that, there isn't much evidence that training or time as a therapist improves outcomes as a therapist. Hmm. So, uh there's this is an area where I'm a big nerd is outcomes, research and therapy. What predicts that people will get the outcomes they want out of therapy? And uh, it is weird, but there's some evidence to suggest that if therapists uh, are just sort of going about being a therapist, doing their normal process of continuing education, maintaining their license and practicing over time, that, that their results actually decline a little bit the longer that they're in the field. It's a very hmm. small effect. Um, a very small correlation, and I'm not arguing that there's a well-known cause for this, but we, we generally see, like, a very slight decline that really is more noticeable of, like, you know, you know, a, an effect size of 0.01 or mm. something, or 0.02 after, like, 40 years in practice. Okay. So it's not a significant decline, but it seems to be a statistically there's not a substantial decline, but it seems to be statistically significant. Okay. And the thing—so, but— Therapy is a helpful intervention, uh, and street epistemologists, I think in order to—I'm not so worried about street epistemologists like wandering into therapy's territory, okay. but I also don't think street epistemologists have the aim of trying to be helpful and have a long-term, ongoing relationship with a particular right. aim in the way therapists do. Right. So I think there are some important differences that distinguish it, but I think it would also be helpful for street epistemologists to take on similar uh, ethical considerations that therapists do, because those are the ones that I really think prevent harm. Okay. And we don't have that Hippocratic edict of first do no harm in our profession. That's primarily for like MDS people in the medical profession. Mm-hmm. But a lot of our edicts end up having that effect. So some of the some of the things in therapy are things like maintaining and working within our scope of competence so if there's something that we're just like i have no idea how to work with this Uh, i don't know how to be helpful in this area that's somewhere where we might refer out or if someone comes in with a problem that's clearly not our expertise so for many therapists that might be if someone comes in with a substance use disorder they might refer out Uh, but for street epistemologists i get the sense that they're primarily interested in identifying and helping people engage in Somewhat of an internal process and somewhat of an external process Mm -hmm. of examining challenging uh, beliefs and the the mechanisms by which we get to beliefs So I don't get the idea that many street epistemologists are doing something like tackling uh, Substance abuse or trauma And I think that might be sort of an area that would be inappropriate for them to tackle But some of the other things Uh, other than just maintaining our scope of competence as a therapist, are things like having particular boundaries, uh, where as a therapist, like it would be like you're not allowed to have uh, relationships with your clients outside of therapy because like your role with them is sort of as, as Mm. their therapist and to have another relationship would disrupt that work. Mm. Uh, Whereas with street epistemology, I don't think there's nearly as strong a necessity to, um, to maintain that clarity of roles, mm-hmm. uh, it's so. not so much
1: an ongoing thing. If I have three yeah. SE encounters with somebody over time, that's quite the in-depth one. That's the rare example. Uh, mm-hmm. But I, I, I have handfuls of friends whom I met in an SE context that are friends independent of that original yeah. conversation. We just got, we just met then, you know
0: yeah 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 we have a very long code of ethics and as i'm thinking about it there are a lot of them that i find like myself invoking throughout Mm -hmm. a given week um but uh yeah as i'm thinking which ones really ought to apply to street epistemology to ensure that street epistemologists aren't harmful to their Mm -hmm. subjects there are only really yeah a few i can think of and one would be yeah sort of staying in that scope of competence Mm -hmm. which is like hey i'm i'm not here to help you necessarily change your relationships or change uh, change your relationship to a substance or help right. you overcome past traumas. Like I'm here to help you examine your beliefs and structures uh, that help you get to those beliefs. So one of the things there that seems to stand out to me, too, is what I was talking about earlier with Anthony, where it is an ethical consideration for us to make sure clients know what they're getting into, Mm -hmm. be able to make an informed consent decision uh, to engage in that. So I think that is a really ethically important thing for SE people to do is to Mm -hmm. have an idea of what is the SE process? How can I explain it concisely such that someone feels like they can consent to this in an informed way? Okay. Good,
1: so competence, consent, and uh staying within that scope uh my understanding is is uh if I'm in doubt, I should be referring uh or or simply saying I don't know who to look for for that for that kind of thing, and i don't have, mm-hmm. as long as I'm declaring that I don't have competence in the area uh and and don't try <laughs> then yeah. I'm real good
0: with that. Yeah, I think there's also something that I've seen, which is that uh, even getting the informed consent is Mm -hmm. one part, but there's another part about uh, permission and ongoing consent, because informed consent is sort of something that happens at the beginning. I explain Mm -hmm. the process and say, do you want to start? And then I've seen where sometimes i seen very few examples of this, but at first, like, one of the initial videos I watched about street epistemology was rather aggressive. Like, the person doing the interrogating mm-hmm. was rather pushy, kind of, like, ran up to this person and wanted to have the conversation, explained it really quickly, and the person was like, okay, but then see, the person seemed kind of ambushed. And I think that was an example of where there was less ongoing consent, even if there was some initial verbal consent. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, yeah, so I think that would be an important part of doing no harm as well. And I heard Anthony talking about that in the podcast where, where he said, check in with people. Say, hey, mm-hmm. how are these landing with you? Are there things you want to ask me? Do you want to keep going? Um, mm-hmm. What are you thinking about this so far? What's it like?
1: Cool, cool. Thank you. Um, that seems like a, almost a complete answer to the question. Was it, was it that simple?
0: I'm not sure. And I really want to think think about it more, Mm -hmm. but I think really, uh, I was rather convinced by the idea uh, that was discussed in that podcast this week as well, Mm -hmm. that this is a conversation, this is a process of just engaging with another person, the sort of risks that we run into in every social situation, that someone might say something to us that's upsetting Mm -hmm. or offensive, or that we really struggle with interpreting or fitting into our worldview and our system of beliefs. But that's something that we run into all the time. And really, it sounds like the goal of street epistemologists is less to, uh, like, I need to foster this particular kind of change rather than I want to challenge people mm. to engage in this process of growth, growth that helps them become more rigorous thinkers. Um, so, I, I, I'm i less of the belief that uh, I I don't feel like there's really good evidence to show that... Um, this process, this internal process of challenging beliefs and becoming skeptical about them has a very predictable negative effect in some circumstances. Mm -hmm. I feel like it's rather unpredictable when someone has a pretty profound negative effect, where, Mm -hmm. let's say, like, if I participate in a religious community, having those beliefs challenged may Mm -hmm. be quite threatening because I may no longer be able to identify as a member of that community and I'll lose some of my social relationships, it's sort of unpredictable whether or not that will happen. So yeah. uh, it's very difficult for someone to take responsibility for that happening for someone. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I know for myself. In, my... in the same way. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I'm interrupting you. But in the no, same way, I was thinking today, there's also this very interesting research about you can have these conversations that have sudden profound positive impacts on people. Mm-hmm. And some of the more notable ones are there's some interesting research showing that there are... Um, There are a number of widely different interventions that have similar effects on people with substance abuse disorders. Mm -hmm. One of those interventions is deciding to start Alcoholics Anonymous and going through a long period of like years of engagement in this Mm community-based support. Another one of those things is seeking out therapy and that seems to have like a similar effect as Alcoholics Anonymous when we're looking at them as totally discrete and separate interventions. But a third one that's also a very similar effect is a doctor making a one-time comment of, you know, you really ought to reduce your drinking. And that seems to have a similar effect as years of engagement in Alcoholics Anonymous. And not saying that these interventions are interchangeable, Mm -hmm. but when we look at these things in isolation as someone's had like an experience with one of these things, each of them can have a rather significant impact that has maybe a similar effect size on a group of people receiving Mm -hmm. that intervention, which is a really shocking finding, at least it was when I first heard it. But uh, that's an example of a doctor saying someone who's got a trusting relationship that's built on informed consent, willing participation, the idea that there's going to be some growth process happening, some change process happening, and there's a simple statement. You know, you might want to consider reducing your drinking or stopping Mm -hmm. altogether, and that has a profound effect. And so it's difficult to know whether our single isolated comments will have a profound positive Mm -hmm. or profound negative effect. So it's... Sort of like we do the best we can to have that consenting relationship based on trust and an alliance And the belief that we're engaging in this change process that we're both interested in and believe in And then something interesting happens
1: mm. mm-hmm. For for myself, uh, I didn't come to my latest deconversion to becoming an atheist That was about 2007 and eight. Uh, by, by a street epistemology means. There was a little bit of that. There was a little bit of people doing critical thinking things with me, but I came to it on my own during my own, on, on my own Bible study and had a had a profound crash. And that oh. had a really significant negative effect in my life. I lost 90% of my social group, and it had a really yeah. significant positive relationship in my life in that I'm much happier with me now. So long-term, oh. big. up, Short-term, big big down that's nobody's fault but my own but it it was a profound thing and if somebody were to have led me into that they if they saw me on the short term in that case they might have thought they might have thought this was a a very negative experience uh yeah for me i might have thought so at the time also
0: yeah yeah it's interesting to think about if you had an individual to put that on how would you feel about them in the short term and the long term and with each of those changes that we experience because throughout our life we will have a number of pretty profound growth and change processes where we really latch on something that seems to be part of us forming a new identity mm-hmm. And how are we going to relate to that process of identity formation over time? Identity formation isn't something I have a lot of experience in but it's something that I think can be very it, 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 It's definitely I don't have a lot of confidence that is in a lot of the theories that purport to be about identity formation, Mm. a lot of them purport to be able to explain what's going on with this process, how does it happen. But I think there's something to be said for this is a very important process Mm -hmm. that many people find deeply impactful. And in my opinion, I don't have a lot of confidence that it's a very well understood process, considering we know that there are these seemingly out of the blue events that we're like, what is what's the relationship between this one event and this profound change in trajectory I had on my life? Mm -hmm. It's very difficult to say.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Someone wants to voice a question?
2: Yes. Uh, Hello, Eric. Hey. Um, I want to do something a little bit different, juggling. Um, I've been really interested in street epistemology for a while. And the topic of how to handle cases that might sound that they would benefit the most from professional help rather than just continuing to have a conversation. Mm And the approach I want to take here in this discussion is I want to tell you, Eric, how I would approach it Mm -hmm. now and you as a professional might take things away from my approach and make them better and like give me advice on, okay, what I'm doing right and what I'm doing wrong. Yeah. And maybe that could help also others and uh, it will help me when I have discussions like this as well to better answer or give the best possible advice. Because I what you discussed so far, I think I completely agree, which is, you know, knowing... Uh, your your limits and uh, and i'll phrase it rather well with scope of competence not Mm -hmm. trying to do the work of uh, the therapist or the doctor for that matter Mm -hmm. Um, and I, i still think that there is a balance between because someone might kind of overreact in that sense saying oh this person needs help hey call this person he will give you professional help like just very abruptly let's say Guiding someone to like and which might have the backfire effect that we know of uh, uh, um, of of just making someone say you know oh I don't need help and so being too abrupt I think is bad and being too subtle wouldn't maybe convince someone that to uh, make the jump so um, my personal approach in this case would be like somewhere in the middle uh, the first thing would be i would say if i see someone that is like uh, in depression or like is going through a rough time i would say mm, it seems like this is uh, really um heavy on you like just uh, repeat and like kind of uh, mirror what they are saying mm-hmm. and recognizing that this is really um affecting them and I would say I, I'm glad that you you, you have you have opened you you have shared this you know uh, it's it's something very very private and I, I think you should uh, talk to this not only with me but also other people. I would ask you know do you have other people to confine to? And that th- th- that has even happened to me in my in my computer store. Like someone <laughs> went to tears by you know uh, sharing uh, their story, and and I was like wow th- th- that's a lot. Uh, uh, I, I hope I'm not the only person, you know, to, that, that you can co- uh, conf, confide, confide, I'm not sure the correct verb, but to share uh, this with, and they said, mm-hmm. yeah, no, other people m- might not understand, they are so judgy in, in our community, and so uh, that would be my first approach to, like, approve or and uh, reinstate that this is uh, heavy on them, and it's it's important, and then, um uh, command them for taking the step and sharing this and uh, giving them positive feedback on sharing on this uh, yeah this of theirs and then i would maybe guide them towards um, and, and like very gently guide them towards speaking with a professional in a way that would hopefully because of my community which is a bit more rural let's say and even a close relative of mine, when I suggested uh, it to them, said, oh, I don't need someone to tell me what to think. Mm-hmm. And we're like, oh, that's perfect then, because that's absolutely what's going to happen. You're, you're, we are not going to be told what to, to think. And I've talked for way too long, so maybe now would be the, the feedback uh, phase, uh, Eric. That's part what, of where I... Right, yeah, and is what perfect. should I uh, change?
0: This is part of where I'm uh, really pleasantly surprised when I watch street epistemology as being practiced, is that I think street epistemology, whether intentionally or unintentionally or independently or having referenced what therapists references, seem to come upon very similar practices. What you described in the way that you would uh, build rapport, reflect what they're feeling, give like highlight this person's strengths and having shared this difficult subject for you and giving them positive encouragement seem to be all of the things that I would have, like someone who's a therapist, I would say, you know, if someone discloses something difficult that you say, this is outside of my scope of competence, you say something like, wow, that sounds like it's incredibly important. I hear that it just weighs on you really heavily. Like it's this thing that you're just carrying around. And I, I think it's really important that you have someone supportive to talk about that with, uh, and I'm really concerned that it's just, it may be outside of my scope of competence. And I think you deserve to get uh, get some help and support in making it through this. And I hear that you're really concerned that you don't want someone to tell you what to think. So I, I don't want to tell you what to think either. But I think it would be, it, it sounds like it would be important for you to have to, to have someone who might be able to help you through this process. And I, I think you you will be able to find someone who won't necessarily tell you what to think, but may be able to offer advice or guide you through this in a way that I couldn't. So, uh, is there a way I can be helpful in helping you find such a person? Uh, do you know what it would take to find such a person? And I, that was that's as I'm sort of. Thinking about what you said and hearing the things you did say, I feel like I'm repeating a lot of the kinds of things that you said, but trying to just condense it into that one statement that would both be not be too subtle, but also might not convince someone. But let me give a caveat, because part of your initial concern was that I worry that if I weren't forceful enough, I might not convince them. And this is something that we get instructed on very early as therapists is that like we're not going to be able to force people to change. We're not going to be able to necessarily fix someone, but we can sort of be along on the journey with people and give them the tools that they can use or give them some of the experiences that we've had that might be part of the change process for them as well. Uh, But, yeah, I can't I can't make someone change, but I can help them. Foster this internal process of healing and change as a therapist I'm interested in healing and change as a a street epistemologist. You might be able to be interested in the process of belief development and change Uh, The other thing that this this brought up another thing around ethics that I wanted to talk about, but at first I wanted to get your feedback on that. Was that sort of what you were looking for, or was it surprising yes. to hear that you're like independently discovering and coming upon things that therapists would do? <laughs> it's not at all surprising to me uh, at all. I've, uh,
1: we're we're influenced a lot by therapists. Uh, uh,
0: we, oh my god! We're, we're
1: into the thing, and uh, yeah. Uh, so, so that, that we might be copying from that, that the authors of, uh, Impossible Conversations, they have clearly pulled from therapists and, and that kind of thing. So, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I don't think I'm actually very creative in my street epistemology, except at the micro level of how to say the thing, which thing to do. Uh, but it's like the creativity in riding a bicycle. It, that's, it's not a very creative endeavor. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and, and, uh. With SE, it's a bit like riding a bicycle at this point. Um, yeah, you know, Certainly more mentally engaging. Certainly more mentally challenging. Um, yeah. Ignoring completely that strange ability to balance on the wheels with the walkings and all that kind of thing, which is, which is its own thing. So, earlier you mentioned um, that, that you could go off and talk about definition and limits of therapy. Is that something? Uh, I would love to hear about that. Oh, uh, sorry, the, the, yeah. the rest of the feedback was uh, Reed also had an additional question, which was, could some SE techniques sure. help someone seek therapy when they really need it? But you answered it in your prior statement. So not only did you answer that question, you were answering the next question that wasn't even posed to you yet. So, excellent.
0: Yeah, I'm wondering, Reed. was there something else you were asking that question, or you felt like it got fulfilled? He you, you says below, well, that answers my question. Yes. So...
1: Yeah. That was the, that was the point. Uh, very, very good. I appreciate that. Yeah. So could you speak to how you see definition? Did I understand earlier definitions and limits of therapy? Did I make my note right?
0: Um, yeah, there are, so there is this thing that we call psychotherapy and we Mm -hmm. have a picture of like how it works where, um, you know, we have something like uh, the American Psychological Association, and they put out a book called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We're on the fifth edition of that yep. book. And DSL we say, you know, people who meet the criteria in that book, they're the ones who have this mental illness, and they're the ones who could benefit from therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you kind of get this picture that like maybe some of those disorders are more severe, and they could benefit a lot from therapy, and maybe those some of those disorders are more mild or more like chronic and are not going to benefit mm-hmm. that much from therapy. And okay, like some of that seems to be like a reasonable belief you could come out with with that. But there is an interesting distinction between the DSM and other manuals, which Mm -hmm. is that the DSM is a manual that is based off of clusters of symptoms. Other medical manuals are based off a medical model that says that you have symptoms. but those symptoms have a cause, which is a deficit in an organ. So, with like mm. with the symptoms that come along okay. with diabetes, you have a disease that's caused diabetes mm-hmm. that has to do with a deficit in an organ. It's a lack of insulin production in the pancreas. Yes. So, therefore, you don't treat the blindness. You don't treat the foot lesions. You don't treat the lack of energy. You treat the deficit of insulin, and then mm-hmm. the problem gets better. Yes. And... We don't really know what depression is, but we know it's a cluster of symptoms that we call depression. But when someone comes in with depression, they may be dealing with a number of different problems, like underlying problems that we actually don't understand and that the DSM doesn't give us much guidance on. Mm -hmm. So there's this confusing problem where it's like the DSM neither gave us much idea about the severity of the problem or like what exactly it is. And it seems like there are better measures that predict whether someone would get something out of therapy, but also seem to correlate a, a fair amount with whether someone would meet a diagnosis in the DSM. Mm. Uh, I use these very general feedback and outcomes measures uh, called the ORS and the SRS, uh, where uh, the ORS is just a general questionnaire about how are you doing individually, how are you doing uh, interpersonally in your closest relationships, mm-hmm. how are you doing socially, how are you doing overall. and. And this isn't something that all therapists use, but this is something that therapists use who are interested in feedback-informed treatment. Mm -hmm. And it seems to predict that if someone uh, uh, has a a lower score on that measure, there'll be more likely to benefit from therapy. If someone has a higher score on that measure, they'll be less likely Mm. to benefit from therapy. And someone may meet the criteria of a mental health diagnosis and still have a very high score on saying just like, I'm still okay in life, like life is going all right for me. I don't really feel like that bad. Maybe I could benefit from therapy. I do meet okay. the criteria for this diagnosis. But this sort of overall measure of how is life going individually, socially, interpersonally, okay. overall seems to be a better predictor of whether people get what they want out of therapy than something like a DSM diagnosis. So that ah. sort of already shook my foundation of therapy where it's like, okay, are we really here to fix these mental health diagnoses or are we here to for something else? Yeah. And I feel like I got a much better explanation of that, actually, because I didn't get this series of questions that I'm discussing now Mm -hmm. in my grad program. Mm. I got them well after my grad program. I was already a therapist, I got introduced to this podcast where people started talking about different theories trying to predict Mm -hmm. what made therapy work Mm -hmm. and i had never heard this thing called uh the dodo bird verdict and the dodo Mm -hmm. bird verdict comes out of alice in wonderland where the dodo bird uh has the race around the table he says everyone they need to race and everyone races around the table Uh and they're all just running in circles around the table and he says at the end that's the end of the race all have won and all must have prizes Okay. Well, there was a similar race going on with different schools of therapy in the 1930s. And okay. a researcher named Saul Rosenzweig uh, said, you know, after studying outcomes across these different therapeutic approaches, it seems like the Dodo-Bird verdict is appropriate. None of them seem to have very measurable or statistically significant differences in outcomes wow. across a number of disorders. So that's really surprising because some schools of therapy are radically different. Are we going to talk about your early childhood and what that says about your personality and how it was shaped? Or are we going to talk about the way that you behave today and how we can change and alter your behaviors using something like operant or classical conditioning in order to get you to behave differently? Those are really radically different and yet that they seem to have similar outcomes where people say, hey, it was helpful. It helped me change or like, you know, some people say it was helpful. Some people said it wasn't, but in general, people find it more helpful than not to engage in some psychological intervention. Mm -hmm. That's, it leads to a lot of weird questions. Yeah. So there's this, there's this larger model, uh, that looks at what is the context in which therapy takes place and what are we accomplishing in therapy? Mm -hmm. And it seems to be that therapy is this process of building a real relationship, uh, where you help people come to understand some issue that they're facing mm-hmm. and develop a way where they can uh, notice the ways in which it may be a changeable issue mm-hmm. and then develop a plan for particular ways that they can make changes on that issue that they go, yeah, I believe that that's what the issue is. Uh, I believe in that thing that you said where I'm going to be able to put an effort and make changes on the issue. Mm-hmm. And then you clarify for them, okay, here's how you can put an effort go and do it. And then the change process happens. So this may seem like, I don't know if that sounds more woo than the one before where I'm giving you a clear idea of like, there's a behavior and I'm going to give you operant conditioning to make it change. Mm -hmm. But that latter one that I described seems to be more predictive of outcomes. And there's some like interesting evidence Mm -hmm. to suggest why, but it also seems to imply that therapy is doing something like tapping into what we might call something like the placebo effect mm-hmm. where the placebo effect is not just one stable thing where mm-hmm. i give you a sugar pill and something happens inside right but it's this internal process of deciding its change is beginning to happen and there are things that are within my control that seem to happen and i'm going to change my relationship to things like anxiety and pain because anxiety and pain seem to be the effects that are most amenable to the placebo effect mm-hmm. but therapy seems to be this process by which we're encouraging and trying to best foster that internal process of healing and change we call the placebo effect, mm-hmm. something like that. And it's not well established that it is identical to the placebo effect, but it's some sort of internal process mm-hmm. of healing and change that's happening for our subject. And. For that to happen, we need to be able to foster a real relationship, uh, give them an explanation that they f- that they accept, and give them a ritual that they feel like is going to be appropriate to do it. And I almost I almost don't like those terms in ways like mm-hmm. the change ritual, but a change ritual can be something like I'm going to undergo an operant conditioning process, mm-hmm. or a change ritual can be something like I'm going to talk about my early childhood and how those affect my personality today.
1: Yeah, yeah, I. This is reminding me of this, uh, the story where they tried to find the optimum lighting conditions in a factory. So they took, put up a notice saying, we're going to be messing with the lighting conditions. Try to ignore it. We're just measuring productivity change. So they raised the lights, productivity went up. They lowered the lights, productivity went up. Because productivity was going up because somebody was paying attention to try to help improve productivity. Which blinds us to a whole bunch of things. It seems like we might be falling into the same kind yeah. of category that if you put a bunch of attention on a thing, it matters less what the specifics of putting the attention on. Putting attention on a thing helps somebody make changes. Yeah. Obviously, there's ways to so, really do it wrong. But the best ways to do it right aren't very specific, it sounds.
0: Yeah, that's a good way to put it. And another way to look at that process you just described is even putting up the sign, I was instilling hope and expectancy. Mm
2: -hmm. Change
0: is going to happen. The lighting process is going to make it happen. Was that really the ritual that made the change process happen? I don't know. But there was someone noticed, hey, this is the time it's going to happen. Like Some internal process happened that I feel like is still... We don't have a good mechanistic explanation for why is this internal process happening? What is it? Mm -hmm. But uh, we know that there are some predictable triggers for this process and some conditions that seem to foster the process more effectively than others. And some of those conditions are things that we see both in therapy and street epistemology, such as Mm -hmm. a real relationship um, sort of boundaries for the relationship consent and active participation Mm -hmm. uh, acceptance of the relationship acceptance of the ritual uh those and some sort of like mutual understanding and uh mutuality in the relationship where yeah so i don't know if that helps clarify it because sometimes that feels about clear as mud to me and sometimes Mm -hmm. it radically changes how i approach the practice
1: yeah yeah well it uh it raises my confidence that I don't need to be very careful about tripping on a magic bullet. Uh, That, that all of these kind of things that I'm doing are vague enough and it's not going to be very measurable necessarily for me. Uh, I'm not sure if that's good news or bad
0: news. (laughs) It's tricky and I'm still kind of divided on the idea whether uh, so one of the when I joined the secular therapy project uh I messaged I think it's Caleb Lack is the head of that is that right do you know Caleb Lack I don't know that one uh, I I haven't you know I haven't actually
1: that's... educated myself on the secular therapy project
0: Okay I think it's Caleb Lack at the head of it, Mm -hmm. and uh, he recommended that I read a book uh, written by the recently late Scott Mm -hmm. Lilienfeld, who is this uh, wide-ranging and sort of giant in the field of psychology, Mm -hmm. Uh, but he wrote a book called Science and Pseudoscience and Clinical Psychology, and one of the things he looks at is, are there some treatments that are predictably harmful? Mm. Um, And I'm, I'm mostly of the belief that he identifies some treatments that I think will be predictably harmful, Um, I I think there's some good evidence to suggest that repressed memory therapy trying to recover Mm -hmm. memories of abuse that may or may Mm -hmm. not have happened. Uh, can be quite dangerous and seems to have had some significant negative results. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty confident that uh, there was a couples therapy technique called Bataka therapy where people were given foam clubs and asked to beat Ah. their partner to express their aggression with the foam club so their partner wouldn't actually be harmed, Mm -hmm. but like you're going to express your aggression with these foam bats. I think that's likely to be very harmful to the well-being of couples and these individuals trying to form healthy relationships Mm -hmm. going forward. Yeah, Uh, yeah. It's hard, it's hard to identify exactly what it is uh, that um, that makes these therapies like. Is there a consistent theme within these therapies that makes them harmful? I'm not sure. Okay. But I'm I'm pretty confident that either of those things would be a bad idea to engage in. Indeed.
1: Uh, yeah, I, I can I can say from personal experience, uh, aggression therapy. Not a positive. If someone said their law of attraction vision board helps them meet their goals, should that claim not be SE?
0: It should be SE if they're interested in having it SE. Okay. I mean, that something helps someone meet their goals. Doesn't mean that uh, it's necessarily true. Mm -hmm. But uh, it matters. Is this person interested in truth? What are they interested in? Are they interested in achieving their goals? Is it possible that there are better ways to achieve your goals? Is it possible that things may be false but helpful beliefs?
1: Okay so um, I guess it would be up to them to bring the claim in. I'm not going to go fishing yeah. around in their life for are there things that that you it, one of the questions I don't really like to ask but might be very fruitful would be are are there things you believe that a lot of other people disagree with you on? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm twingy about just fishing based on that. I, it might be effective, but, uh, uh, I don't necessarily want to pull that in. Um,
0: Yeah, they're tricky. And I remember I'm, I'm a big Sam Harris listener and he Mm -hmm. spent a lot of time after his debates with Jordan Peterson thinking about, are there things that may be false, but are still helpful? And Mm -hmm. the thing that he came across that was present in his life is in handling a firearm, Mm -hmm. you sort of try and maintain the belief as though the firearm's always loaded. That's a very helpful belief for firearm safety. And yet at many times, you will go through, based on that belief, a process of checking whether the firearm's loaded. Mm -hmm. And then even after checking and seeing it's unloaded, still behaving as Mm -hmm. though it is. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's it's a very tricky thing. I'm still interested in the project to have true beliefs, have reliable ways to get at true beliefs, Mm And I think it's very likely that having true beliefs will still be able to find helpful ways to get where we want to go. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think getting where we want to go relies on maintaining false beliefs nearly as much as uh, some might want to claim. And I don't think there are many there that might want to claim it, but I know in the Harris Peterson debate, that was one of the sort of famous differences is that we might have like uh we might have these sort of metaphorical justifications of belief where we're choosing to believe them and accept them as though they are true out of their pragmatic value that they are helpful. Mm -hmm.
1: Somebody just popped in and they, they might not have heard everything we've said so far. So this might be repeat, but are there things SEER should be sensitive or watch for when conversing with people?
0: Yeah. Yeah. That was something I'm thinking of earlier. Um, Because I was trying to think, okay, do you really wanna be sensitive for sources of trauma? Mm -hmm. Like, do you really, it'd probably be, and I think, yes, there are things that people are going to find very deeply emotionally disturbing that are sort of predictably going to make them have a bad experience in a new social environment if these sorts of memories are triggered. And I think those things are like asking someone whether they, like I could probably get someone to talk about trauma if I ask them, can you easily remember the worst experience of Mm, your life, the mm -hmm, absolute mm -hmm. worst moments of your life? That's one of the questions that I end up using, one of a number of questions I use to assess for trauma. And if I don't feel like I have the tools or if I haven't, in fact, even if I'm starting to work with someone and they're a trauma patient and they're coming in saying, I want to work on my trauma. It's not something I generally talk about the content of their trauma in the first session. They may really want to go in it and we may begin to wade into those waters, but I may put it in those words. We're beginning to wade into those waters. But I think, you know, from your experience, you're here because those waters are deep and they're very difficult to swim in. And Mm. I want to make sure you have the tools to be able to swim and get back to shore before we go there again. And they might find that metaphor helpful to organize, okay, Okay. I'm in therapy too, to learn those tools to swim back to shore. And those tools may be things like uh, emotional regulation skills, like breathing relaxation, grounding skills, Mm. uh, being able to meditate and return to the present moment, rather than being lost in that memory where... That is often one of the symptoms of trauma is it feels like it's happening again. Mm, that memory, mm-hmm, it feels mm-hmm. like such a hyper memory, it's like yeah. I'm there now. And yeah. I'm emotionally dysregulated and in a fear response, like I'm like there, like I'm there again. So I think that would be something that would be very dangerous for seers to tread into if okay. they suddenly had someone have a belief that was based on a real traumatic experience and you ask someone to describe the traumatic experience would probably be a very bad idea. Okay. So that would be sort of like a red flag area where you might wanna have a line that's sort of a bookmark of, it sounds like that's an incredibly emotional experience. Uh It sounds like that's something important to work on with someone at some point, but I worry that those, you may may be talking to me and I feel like, you're talking to me right now and Mm -hmm. I feel like I might not have the tools to help you navigate such a heavy experience.
1: Yeah, okay. That's a that's a good marker to put down. Um, uh, I, I I will be listening for people who, when I ask their reasons, start to tell me about something that's obviously dis- distressing. And yeah. uh, and and c- claim my ignorance of how to navigate those waters. Yeah, thank you, thank you for
0: that. Yeah, and I'm wondering too what can be reliable signs of that too, because I think. For being an SEer, I think this gets back to some of those skills we were talking about earlier where you're building a real relationship. And part of that is identifying, like being able to engage in reflective listening, say mm-hmm. back to someone what they just said in a way that they agree with. It's both reflective listening and steel manning, so mm-hmm. you're, you're getting like double points there. But as you're doing that, you also end up reflecting some feeling. Mm-hmm. And to be able to reflect what people are feeling, you have to be sort of empathetic and attuned to, like, what's going on with them right now mm-hmm. and how are they feeling. And if you're engaging in that and you're really trying to, like, identify with them, you might notice your body posture moving like them. Mm-hmm. And that's often cited in therapist manuals as mirroring body posture as a way to build rapport mirroring Uh feeling is a way to build rapport. So they're effective tools for an SE person, but they should also be tools that you're using to notice what's going on in me. Am I getting stressed out as I'm hearing them describe this? Mm -hmm. Do I need to let them know, wow, I'm feeling some stress as you're describing this. I'm getting a sense that this is a very heavy topic for you. Mm -hmm. And I worry that I don't have tools to help you navigate that topic. Mm -hmm. Typically my strengths are here and I feel like you may need someone whose strengths are in dealing with heavy topics of that Mm -hmm. nature.
1: Mm -hmm. So, back to staying in the scope of competence uh, and and just recognizing that we shouldn't expect to um, be prepared to do that well without training. Indeed. Indeed. Well, is, is it true in therapist language that 50 minutes is an hour? Yes. (laughs) Okay, we just passed 51 (laughs) minutes. So thank you very much for for coming to to this hour of uh, discussion about street epistemology. Uh, Is there anything that in the crowd would like to say at the last? And is there anything that you'd like to say to the people in the room before? uh, Oh, okay. Uh, Yes. Okay.
0: This is actually a really interesting question. Ragnar asks, if the SEer suspects the interlocutor might have schizophrenia, should they avoid doing SE with that person? I think it actually would be really helpful to just notice if someone's displaying some signs of psychosis, which mm-hmm. would be something like they're responding to internal stimulus. Yeah. They seem to be either like reacting to something that isn't there or talking to something that isn't there. Uh, That may look like something like disorganized behavior where it's like I'm looking around. I'm looking at things There's clearly I feel Mm -hmm. like something's behind you that you like you feel like something's behind you because they keep responding to it Uh, So if someone's responding to internal stimulus Yeah, that is probably a time really where conversation is not nearly as as helpful as medical intervention Mm -hmm. and sort of an environment that significantly reduces stress So there is some stress in every social exchange and yes, it may not be helpful to engage with someone who's responding to internal stimulus. Mm -hmm. However, there are other features of schizophrenia that like, it's interesting because SE is geared towards challenging something like what we might in the, the the clinical psychology field call a delusion, a belief that's held despite evidence to the contrary, Mm -hmm. despite Mm -hmm. significant evidence, to the contrary, a belief that's rigidly held that way. Um, Generally, if I'm working with a client who has, uh, (laughs) who seems to have significant delusions and other symptoms of schizophrenia, I work on building a relationship with that person and helping them figure out how they're going to manage their symptoms rather than directly challenging their delusions. Mm -hmm. Because usually, challenging those delusions are just a good way to ensure that our relationship will suffer and that I won't be able Mm. to be helpful to that person. Mm. So, there is something, there is really something there where um, there's something to be attuned to whether someone is so disorganized that just having an se session might not be productive for them and i might just there might be some signals that i'll pick up on that let me realize hmm it's this is unlikely to get get us where i'm hoping the conversation will get to Mm -hmm. are there other things that i need to focus on or just try and figure out how to be helpful to this person because i'm noticing that they are not in a psychological state to be able to engage effectively in an se session Mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. a very tricky question because schizophrenia is a broad and complicated disorder and uh there are many different manifestations of it like you know whether someone just has the hallucinations and uh and disorganized behavior or whether someone really just has the delusions Mm -hmm. and they can be had separately they can be had together together we commonly call them schizophrenia separately we have sort of different names for those things but uh, it's a really complicated question to ask whether S.E. would be effective on someone like that. But in general, my understanding is that cognitive interventions are not highly effective with mm-hmm. people dealing with delusions that are held that
1: rigidly. I picked up yeah, one well, of your definitional books. I don't know if it's yours. I, I don't want to have to tar you okay. with all the books. But I, I looked up delusion and I... And uh-huh. And it seems like there is an opt-out or I could mm. tick every single one of the boxes, but as long as I'm doing so in service of a major accepted religion, it's not delusion.
0: We call that uh, culturally appropriate belief. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a religion. Okay, if it's something that is common <sighs> in your culture or seems to be some sort of thing that seems to be socially appropriate, mm-hmm. then we might say, okay, well, if I challenge that belief as a therapist, mm-hmm. it might be imposing my values on the client. Mm-hmm. So as a therapist, I have an ethical obligation not to necessarily impose my values on the client and tell right. them what's right and wrong. But uh, as an SEer, you can always engage. And really, as a therapist, you can engage in Socratic questioning. How do you know sure. it's right? Is it necessarily right if everyone believes in it? Okay. And as a therapist, we have these edicts to not impose our values on the client. And yet... I feel like we end up doing it all the time in what we choose to question and what we don't choose to question. Mm -hmm. And I feel like we have the fundamental value of, I want to help this person have some sort of healing process that will allow them to suffer less. And if that's imposing my values on the client, I'm kind of okay with it. I'm kind of okay with helping people suffer less if I can be helpful in that way. Um, but I feel like it's very difficult to be completely consistent in an edict to never impose your values. Mm -hmm. And I I also feel like there are really, that is the guidance more of there are better and worse ways to be able to discuss values. Mm -hmm. Uh, And one of the worst ways is just saying that's wrong. And I know so because my culture believes differently.
1: What's a good way to extricate extricate yourself from a troublesome talk?
0: to? what's a good way to extricate yourself from a troublesome talk, a troublesome or problematic talk. Yeah. I guess I'd wanna hear more about what SEers generally find troublesome or problematic because SEers so commonly engage in quite difficult and mm-hmm. activating conversations. I feel like that could describe so many things, but I'm not sure what for an SEer is troublesome or problematic. Uh, hostility, uh, things that are
1: taking the rapport okay. the wrong direction. Uh, yeah. Threat, strong Distraction,
0: those are a few mm. Yeah Threat and hostility I think it's very Important to be able to Be direct and say uh, Because Those are things that we encounter in the therapy room As well uh, But to be able to name it and say Hey, I'm noticing that this seems to be Activating a lot in you right now And I if you could tell me a little bit about what what happened and what led us to this place, I think, you know, it certainly wasn't where I intended for us to end up, but I really want to understand what happened that led us to this place. To be able to really uh, name the dynamics, so identify the process, mm-hmm. and engage instead of continuing to be on the content level of, this is the object level belief that we're discussing mm. and the the questions that might challenge it, instead drop into a process level discussion. Okay. I'm noticing that this is bringing up a lot of activation for you. I'm really feeling stressed out in this too. Yeah. Uh, are, do, are you sure you wanna to continue to engage in it? Because I certainly didn't wanna leave you in a place where you felt like you couldn't, you weren't comfortable with me questioning you in this way. Yeah, yeah. So, so dropping from content to process is sort of that first tip. Uh, but then, uh, yeah, I think you have to be able to have a, a graceful exit that says something like, you know, it seems like it seems like we've gotten to an unhelpful place here, and I certainly don't want to push you on mm-hmm. this belief anymore. So maybe it's best if we end the conversation for now. Yeah.
1: Okay. Good. I I have for myself as a rule of thumb. I don't know actually how long I how many times I've actually managed to use it, uh, and that is. We were bringing up so somebody showed up maybe schizophrenic Uh, i think my standard would not be to extricate myself directly but instead to just shift to calm listening stop trying to dig deeper at all but just hear them out completely and Mm
0: -hmm.
1: i think usually that's going to de-escalate and help no matter what the no matter what the situation is
0: i think there's one, what, I I agree with that. I think it's a a, a good solution. Uh, one thing that is also noteworthy when dealing with patients with a significant number of odd beliefs and delusions is that being able to listen to them doesn't mean I'm going to endorse them. So I, I I think I also need to be very careful about not reflecting back that Oh yeah, definitely. Mm. I, oh yeah, that's that's certainly the case. Even just sort of my my little nonverbal sort Mm -hmm. of affirmations can sometimes be taken of this person agrees with me too this is a real belief, Mm. and i really want to kind of like remain neutral Mm -hmm. and in fact maybe engage in sort of almost extinguishing the conversation by like flattening my affect a little bit and showing that i'm not totally following them anymore Mm -hmm. before saying before because that's going to that, that ought to have some sort of effect of this person noticing this person's not engaged in this conversation they may not be consciously aware of you dropping out of the conversation like that but they'll mm-hmm. unconsciously pick up on the flattening of your affect if you sort of freeze your face and you don't, you don't no longer keep following them everything where you're showing mm-hmm. you're following along by nodding little verbal affirmations mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: so that can be a good way to start to wind a conversation down
1: oh Uh, Ragnar uh, posts uh, CPI uh, CPI? You'll have to tell me what that means Uh, Be empathetic and non-judgmental Respect personal space Use non-threatening non-verbals Avoid overreacting Focus on feelings Ignore challenging questions Set limits Choose wisely what you would insist upon Or what you'd insist upon Allow silence for reflection and allow time for decisions I like those yeah it's crisis prevention Institute thank you Cpi uh, yeah 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 um, i've been I've been speaking to a, a longstanding friend of mine Herschel Knapp, the author of the book Therapeutic Communications he'll be on in some weeks I expect uh, and and he was giving me very much the same kind of uh, uh, Answers and we're working on outlines for that. So that'll be fun. There.
0: Yeah. I think I'm hearing uh, my wife get home just now.
1: Okay. And we've, we've taken you for well over an hour, even not just a therapeutic hour, but, but, but the ordinary kind,
0: but a real hour. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. The real (laughs) genuine hour. So uh, thank you for coming to this. I, I really appreciate this time. Uh, And I've learned a lot today. I'll be reviewing back this oh, video and making and taking so much for having me on. It's so notes. good to
0: talk to you again, Dolly.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Eric. Uh, and uh, I will I will speak to you uh, soon after. Let's see. So Sounds Eric's site here is uh, Individual Therapy and Couples Counseling. Uh, all this information will be in the doobly-doo once I finish my homework.
0: Yeah. And the only trick is spelling Eric with a K, -K, E-R-I-K, ericandersontherapy.com. Thank you, Eric uh, with a K. mm
2: -hmm.
0: So
1: here are five channels that I really like relating to street epistemology. They are one of about 15 channels that I have in a rotating list in my promoted channels uh, there on the Facebook If you are really interested in this topic of street epistemology, my favorite big chunk together gathering place for information about SE is streetepistemology.com brought to you by Street Epistemology International, which is also the people that bring you the SE podcast. For those of you who like your uh, SE in audio and uh, low bandwidth forms, easy to travel and things of that order. Thank you for coming to this session of discussion about Street of Estimology. Uh If you would like to be a guest on my show on any topic near at Street of Epistemology, whatever it is, uh, I have eight different categories of shows. We'll fit you in one of them. Thank you. I look forward to hearing from you.